I am very excited to be reconnecting today on the morning show for the first time in quite a while with uh, Laura Gelat, who for many years was a member of the history faculty at the University of Wisconsin Parkside and is now a uh, professor emeritus of history at Parkside. And uh, Professor Gelat was on the morning show any number of times over the years to talk about uh, various matters related to European history in particular, because that was one of her uh, areas of, of specialty. And as a matter of fact, I, I believe it was uh, during the, that portion of time when uh, the Balkans were engulfed in conflict that we had Professor Gelat on repeatedly to help us kind of understand that part of the world and the turbulence that was uh, engulfing it. Today we are talking about uh, something very, very different, uh, although in many respects also rooted in history, albeit uh, in, a, in a different sort of way. And this is a, a highly personal interview as well, because the new book that uh, Laura Gelat has written is, is a very personal book, and it's in a sense a book about a book. It is a book about the woman who wrote what I'm guessing was one of Laura Gelat's favorite books, if not her very favorite book when she was a youngster, a book called Jean and Company Unlimited, which told the story of um, some young women traveling through Europe and experiencing and seeing all kinds of incredible things. And it, uh, it was something that uh, Laura Gelat loved so much. And we'll, we'll, we'll tell you about what sort of ignited her interest in trying to find out something about the author of that book, Helen Perry Curtis. But uh, to make a long story short at this point, she was able to uncover a tremendous amount of information about this fascinating woman. And hence this brand new book uh, published by Paraffin Press called Helen Perry Curtis and the European Trip of a Lifetime. And woven into all of this is not only Laura Gelat's own love of this book, but also the way in which this book was a real inspiration to her, and probably in more ways than one, uh, helped inspire her uh, to pursue the life that she did uh, as a historian uh, interested in the fascinating continent of Europe. Uh, so I'm excited that we can have some time to talk about all of this and more. And uh, Laura Gelat, we welcome you back to The Morning Show. Oh, thank you so much, Greg. It's just such a pleasure to be here with you today. So uh, can you remind me at what point you retired from uh, the University of Wisconsin Parkside, at least yeah. roughly, and uh, how you have uh, filled your days uh, <laughs> uh, since then? Yes, I retired in spring of 2012, so it's been eight years already. And um, there were points along the way where I would say, I should have more to show for it. <laughs> and this book finally coming into print after five years in the making is something that I can point to and say, well, here's what I did in retirement. I also, during those years, um, have been involved in some community things. I was on the board of the Racine Heritage Museum, which is certainly an institution familiar to many of our listeners. Um, served on the board of the Hopes Center, st still serve with the Hopes Center in Racine, which uh, works with the homeless population in Racine County. Um, various other things. Uh, our parish celebrated its centennial a year ago, and I was in charge of that and wrote the St. Edward history. Um, so, yeah, 
I've managed to stay quite busy during the years since Parkside. And of course, I keep up my connections with the campus, still do some things there uh, for the university. Very good. Very good. So your book, in a sense, hits the ground running, uh, the <laughs> prologue in which you tell us about uh, the moment when you, as a nine-year-old, uh, were first given this book, which in a set in a sense, set all kinds of things in motion, including eventually this new book we're talking about today. Tell our listeners about that day uh, when you were in your grandfather's house with your mother and uh, what happened on that day. All right. Well, it's a moment I can still see clearly. I have never forgotten it. I was standing with my mother in front of one, one of the floor-to-ceiling bookshelves that lined the walls at Grandpa's house, and we we went often up to grandpa's house because we lived in the same town. And uh, often my mother, as part of the visit, would raid the bookshelves and bring home things uh, either for her to read or uh, sort through the books that had belonged to her and her brothers as children and bring them for us. So I was standing next to mom and she was going through the shelf and she pulled this book off the shelf and handing it to me said, here, you'll like this. It's about a girl who goes to Europe. And I remember I was already reading this book in the car on the short drive back to our house. I just fell in love with this story. And it was just what my mother said. It was the story of a teenage girl named Jean, who along with her mother sails to Europe on a glamorous ocean liner. And the premise is that the mother is going to be traveling throughout Europe gathering material for a book she's writing on European folk costume and custom. And while she is doing that, Jean will attend a boarding school in the south of France. And uh, at this boarding school, Jean meets girls from all around Europe. And very fortuitously, a number of them have the name that is a cognate of Jean. She quickly meets Jeanette from France, Giovanna from Italy, Hannah from Austria, so on and so forth. And they decide to form a club, a Jean club, with the business-like and neutral name of Jean and Company Limited, originally they call themselves. And this then proves to be the springboard where during the summer vacation, and then it turns out a second year, where Jean and her mother decide that instead of going back to school, the two of them will travel through Europe, but they then go and see these girls in their home countries, girls who have conveniently either graduated or not returned to school for one reason or another. So this Jean Club proves to be the device that allows Helen to move her character, Jean, throughout these various countries. So that's the premise of the book. And again, a book I read over and over again. And as you so beautifully set up, proved to be the spark for my interest in European travel, European history, and eventually one day UW Parkside, mm. <laughs> that wonderful career there yeah. in the history department. So can you clarify the nature of this book? Uh, I, I'm curious about a couple of different things. And by the way, it's delightful to know that you still have the copy of this book oh, that yes. your mother took off your grandfather's bookshelf all those years ago. Yes. Uh, so I assume that this was a book very much conceived for 
young readers or or maybe not and also how big a book was it how long was it uh, did it have illustrations i mean um what, what what did this book look like even at a glance oh well this book is i'm it's out of reach at the moment but it's at least 300 pages long so it's mm -hmm. a substantial book uh written for what today we would call the young adult audience i should um sort of start giving away the results of some of my research, my more recent research into it, it began as a series of stories in the Girl Scout magazine. So written for teenagers or for you know, adolescents around the age of 10 or so, clearly written for that audience. Yes, it has illustrations. One of the things I discovered in my recent research is that the illustrator a woman named Grace Paul, who has an extensive resume as an illustrator of children's literature, used the actual photographs from Helen's photo albums. As I got into the research for this, and we'll talk about how I met Helen's granddaughters and what all that opened up, um, as I went through the photo albums, I could immediately recognize how Grace Paul had taken some of the photos both of important European landmarks as well as of Helen's two daughters, as it turned out, and turned them into these lithograph drawings. So yeah, the book is, is beautifully illustrated, as I say, about 300 pages long, um, and aimed at a, a teenage or even younger audience of, of girls, primarily. Wow. I think it's really interesting to think about a book intended for young readers that would be that long. And in a sense, that dense. <laughs> oh, what, what does that say? Oh, it <laughs> says a lot. <laughs> yeah, the book was published in 1937. And another discovery um, in the research is that the book was published uh, at the recommendation of the Junior Literary Guild. I think your listeners are familiar, many of them, with the Literary Guild, which flourished from the 1930s until probably well into the 70s or 80s, a subscription book service and the imprimatur of being a literary guild or a junior literary guild selection carried some weight with it. And uh, among other things, particularly for the junior literary guild, it guaranteed library sales across the country. Hmm. Many libraries simply had standing orders for the junior literary guild selection of the month, which Jean and company was in January of 1938. And so the first printing of 10,000 copies immediately sold out to libraries. And I suspect also <laughs> because my mother, according to the inscription in the book, got it as a Christmas present in 1937. My mother got, my, when my mother would have been 10 years old, um, she got one of the first edition copies as well. Oh, wow. So one of the things you tell us about in the prologue is that you continued to read this book and reread it from time to time as a lot of us do with books that were really special to us in our in our childhood but that you also had a kind of a burning interest in knowing more about the book and it sounds like one of the first questions that you had was just how true this book was tell us more about that that question and other questions you had about that which ultimately fueled your desire to, to really seek out some answers uh, uh, to these questions. Right. I guess it's proof that already at age 10 or 11, I was a budding historian. Let's, let's get to the <laughs> real story behind this novel. 
Um, and that was also fueled by the fact that in the preface, Helen says, um, this book wrote itself. Uh, this, this, this is a true story. Jean and her mother made this trip and together they visited all these countries with the exception of Iceland, which only Jean's father saw. But by the time he told them about it, they felt like they'd been there. So there was already this ambiguous or ambivalent characteristic. We're told on the one hand, this is all true, but I fictionalized this one chapter. Okay, so how much of this is true? Who really were these people, I thought? who could go to Europe for two years in what, even as a young person, I recognized had to be the interwar years in Europe. Uh, certainly the publication date was one clue, but for example, when they visit Sarajevo, uh, they uh, Helen writes that this is the city where the Archduke was assassinated and the Great War began. Okay, the Great War, we don't yet have the Second World War. So I was able to locate that and I'd always, even at that young age, known about history. My parents talked a lot about the Great Depression and so on. So here are these two people traveling for two years in Europe in the 1930s. Uh, who are they? So I made attempts, especially as I got into high school and college, I would try looking up Helen Perry Curtis in the limited kinds of research tools that we had then and just couldn't find anything. Um, at some point, looking at the Reader's Guide to Periodical Literature, I found out that she wrote frequently for women's magazines, but I didn't see anything in the listing of those topics that connected up with a grand tour of Europe. Um, later on, come the age of the internet, I started finding used copies of Jean and Company on eBay mm. or Amazon, but again, nothing about the author herself until, as I tell in the prologue, this one lucky night, this lucky Google search that connected me ultimately with, with Helen's granddaughters. Mm. You uh, find that this is a, a, a surprise because it, it connects Helen Perry Curtis with the state of Nebraska. Yes. And, and, <laughs> and I, I, I think if I remember correctly, you were really surprised because, you know, here is this woman writing this marvelous book about traveling to Europe and I think you had not ever imagined that this would be a woman from a state like Nebraska and uh, but in fact her ties to Nebraska were deep and significant and uh, that's a really important part of the story. So tell us about the connection that you were able to first make uh, in, in terms of being able to gather up some really important information about Helen Perry Curtis and about some of her surviving descendants. Yes, and with all due respect to the state of Nebraska. Um, <clears throat> so this Google search, and I, I will just back up a teeny bit and say that I owe this to a, a little free library on uh, the corner of 3rd Avenue and uh, 60th Street or something in Kenosha where I picked up a book um, written by MFK Fisher a noted mid-century travel writer, and in there she talks about traveling through Provence with her daughters. And I thought, well, this is just like Jean and Company. And then there has to be a way, I thought, to find Helen Perry Curtis, dog on it. So I went to the computer and I put her name in again, as I had done so many times, and this time up came a match to a Helen Perry Curtis room in the Student Center at Doan College in Crete, Nebraska. 
And again, this initial surprise, Nebraska. I pictured her as this New York woman, as she is in Jean and Company, taking her daughter on a glamorous trip. But how many Helen Perry Curtises can there be, I thought. So I got up uh, on my screen the Doan College website. I drilled down to the level of the library, the archivist, and I sent this inquiry. I'm interested in Helen Perry Curtis, who in 1937 published Jean and Company Unlimited, and I see you have a Helen Perry Curtis room in your student center. Um, next morning, I received a reply from the archivist at Doan telling me, yes, this is the person you're looking for. Her father was president of Doan College. And for 40 was, years, right? For 40 years, for 40 years, from 1872 <laughs> until 1912. And um, Helen was born and raised here in Crete. Helen was born in 1888, as it turned out. Um, so this Janet Jeffries and I then began emailing each other back and forth in rapid succession, during which time I think she probably also Googled me to find out my bona fides. And on about the fifth exchange of emails, all within the first hour or so, she said, I actually have an address for one of Helen's granddaughters if you would like it. Well, of course, I, I did want that address. So she gave me uh, the address of Susie Photo, uh, who lived in Massachusetts, who lives in Massachusetts. I wrote her a letter and about five days later received a very enthusiastic email along the lines of, oh my goodness, <laughs> to think that someone out there knows about our grandmother to think that someone has read and still treasures Gene and Company Unlimited. Um, I would just love to be further in contact with you. And as soon as I read your letter, I ran to the phone and called my cousins in New Jersey. Now, this was one of my first clues to some dissonance between Gene and Company and real life cousins. I thought Jean was an only daughter. <laughs> well, it uh, turns out that the girl in the book is a composite of Helen's two real-life daughters, one of them named Jean, and that was Susie's mother, and then the younger by a year daughter, Polly, and she is the mother of Martha and Pat, Martha and Pat Wells in Chatham, New Jersey. So very quickly, we were all exchanging emails, and uh, finding out some initial things about the, the real life story. And then it was early summer of 2015. I, I first did this Google search in January of 2015. By early summer came an email from Martha and Pat, please come visit us. Uh, they wrote that Susie was coming down. Uh, Susie lives on Martha's Vineyard, a year round resident, and it is her practice to get off of Martha's Vineyard every July and August. <laughs> before the summer people descend. So Susie was coming home to New Jersey where she had been raised to spend the next six weeks with her cousins and I should come out and meet them all. And they promised there would be lots of letters, diaries, photo albums. Uh, we could visit the Newark Museum where Helen had worked and it would be fun. And my thinking at that point was, well, yes, it will be great to meet these women I've been corresponding with now and find out more about Helen. And maybe I could write an article for a library journal about an influential childhood book and how it shapes your life. But when I got to New Jersey and after lunch that first afternoon, they started bringing down these boxes from the attic. And when I saw the wealth of material they had, I, I knew that Helen's life really 
demanded and deserved a proper biography. Mm. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with uh, Laura Jalot about a book she has just written called Helen Perry Curtis and the European Trip of a Lifetime. And in this book, she explores the real life of Helen Perry Curtis, the author of uh, the single most important and influential book in uh, Laura Jalot's life, at least as a youngster, namely Jean and Company Unlimited, telling the story of this young woman named Jean uh, and her travels to Europe and the people she meets there and the experiences that she has. Um, An important book to a lot of probably young people at at the time and uh, a book that uh, Laura Jalot was really hungry to explore. Um, So this turned out to be quite an odyssey for you in terms of learning more about the actual life of Helen Perry Curtis. As you undertook this, did you have any trepidation that you were going to uncover things that, in a sense, might taint whatever image you had about who this woman was uh, mm. or, what, or how she was put together? Because sometimes when we probe into the lives of people that we maybe admire in kind of an offhanded way or, or are kind of intrigued by, sometimes what we uncover is not not entirely positive. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I, I don't think I had that fear. I think my curiosity uh, kind of overrode any hesitation about what I might find. I think also, you know, knowing and meeting the granddaughters and forming instantly this bond, perhaps put in my mind, and I, I said to them several times, this is not investigative journalism here. You know, I, I want to tell the story of Helen through the prism of her European travels. Um, somebody asked me early on, now, now that you bring this up, I was talking to the um, history club at Parkside and still in the early phases of research. And one of the students, I think, very perceptively asked, do you like her? Mm. And at that point, I hesitated for a minute. And I said, I, I don't really know yet. I'm still getting to know her. And <laughs> there were some times where maybe she came off as being a little bit elitist. But the deeper I got into it, I saw that any of that was really counterbalanced by so much more humanity and sympathy and just being a fascinating person, both of her times. So we strive to understand a person as historians. We try to, we strive to understand a person within their context. But what increasingly drew me to her is how far ahead of her time she was in many other ways. Um, really, really quite a remarkable woman. So I ended up having um, having a great deal of affection for her, and uh, I, I hope. And the, the granddaughters are happy <laughs> with the book, as it turned out. I think I have presented her very fairly. Um, at the same time, it's it's not just a whitewash. One of the things I go into in chapter seven, when Helen and her husband, John Curtis, travel to Europe in 1926 and 1930, both of them are quite enamored of Mussolini. Yes. And I, I go into, how could they have gotten this so wrong? Hmm. How could they, as people who embraced 
you know, the avant-garde in the arts as people who were really products of and committed to aspects of the progressive movement in the United States. How could they have gotten Mussolini and fascism so wrong? But there are ways in which one can, can see, given their artistic bent and the way in which fascism cynically exploited this yearning present in aspects of progressivism, a yearning for a pre-industrial, pre-capitalist, traditional society, uh, they, they fell for this. Now they, they recovered their footing in time because both John and Helen became very active in World War II relief efforts, aiding Britain in particular. Um, so that's, uh, that's an aspect of the story that I explore in, in chapter 11 by that point, the, uh, the World War II era work that both of them did. I want you to say a brief word about Crete, Nebraska, because <laughs> okay. this is, of course, uh, it's essentially where she's from. <laughs> mm -hmm. And and I think you ended up learning a lot about what a remarkable community this was. And, 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 and I suppose one remarkable aspect of it, too, is that Crete, Nebraska, while it's the one and only Crete, Nebraska. And by the way, I remember Crete, Nebraska, because I went to grad school in Lincoln, Nebraska. Which oh, which is not too far away. And so I can, I can picture the street, the, the exit sign if you want to visit Crete, which I've never done. But, but <laughs> Crete, Nebraska was also one of a number of such communities that dotted the country in that era. Just briefly, uh, explain to our listeners what this community was like and in a place why somebody like Helen Perry Curtis could spring from that kind of ground and from that kind of community. Yeah, what a great observation. Well, I have been to Crete. I went to Crete, it's four years ago, and spent time in the archives there with the papers of Helen's father, longtime president of the college, and then went up to Lincoln for a day, too, because her grandfather, Thomas Doan, uh, all his papers were up at the State Historical Society in Lincoln. Mentioning her grandfather, Thomas Doan, and Doan College tells us already something about the milieu in which Helen grew up. Uh, briefly, Thomas Doan, born near Boston, was a civil engineer and worked with the Burlington and Missouri Railroad and literally went west with the railroad, laying the tracks and establishing towns along the way, towns which are still known as the alphabet towns, um, starting with Asylum, Berks, and then Crete, <laughs> mm -hmm. and he kept going with Dorchester and so forth. Um, Thomas Doan took a liking to the town that he founded on the banks of the Blue River named Crete, and he built himself a home there, which he used as his base as he continued to direct the westward extension of the railroad. Uh, <clears throat> coming from the background he did in Boston, New England, it was not enough merely to establish a town. You needed to fill it with solid civic institutions. And that began... <clears throat> among other things, with an academy, grade school and high school education, uh, to which as the primary financial benefactor, uh, his name was attached, Doan Academy. And Thomas Doan was also a congregationalist, a staunch congregationalist, again, roots in Boston. And working with the congregational church, they decided that they needed a college. And so building upon the foundation of Doan Academy, they established a college in 1872 and hired a recently ordained congregational minister, Brainerd Perry, 
to be the first president of this institution. Brainerd Perry, within a few years, married Thomas Doan's daughter. And Brainerd and Helen Doan Perry, then among their five children, had one daughter, Helen Perry, who would one day become my Helen Perry Curtis. So this community, <clears throat> at the time Helen was born, roughly 4,000 people, a substantial portion of it centered around the college. The college from its origins was co-ed. Mm. admitted women on and so this is another ingredient an element in her personality men and women were always equal uh, a substantial portion of the faculty were women um, in this town of roughly 4,000 people including the college population fully 20% were foreign born mm. so we're talking the 1880s the 1890s and by and large German and Czech immigrants so this fascination that Helen had for European immigrants, European folk custom, tradition, costume, this was evident already, something rooted in her childhood in Crete. So again, this milieu of a college town, one that was already ethnically diverse, according to the standards of the day, European immigrants. These are all ingredients in her background. So you, you go on to chronicle all kinds of fascinating details about her life, childhood growing up, her, uh, her education, and so on, formative years. And what's especially remarkable and interesting in your book is when we are, in a sense, taken along on the trip that she makes to Europe the first time with her mother, also Helen. So Helen is known as Big Helen. Right. So the two Helens uh, travel Europe together. And it's remarkable how much detail there is about this, this first journey to Europe. And I wonder if you can explain briefly the, how there are so many details that survive. I mean, how you are able to chronicle this in such a vividly uh, detailed way. Yeah, and a few friends who have already read the book have commented the same thing. How were you able to get this amount of detail? Well, to quote Helen's granddaughter, Pat Wells, our family never threw anything away. Hmm. And again, I go back to that first afternoon in Chatham, New Jersey in July of 2015, when these boxes began to issue forth from the attic and under the beds and off of bookshelves. Uh, one box, there's the, the entire run of letters that Helen wrote home from a later trip when she was in, in Europe as a volunteer in 1918. Uh, yet another box had all of these letters that the Helens, as they signed themselves, wrote home in 1914-1915. So all of this got saved. Um, the letters that they sent home were saved at that end by family members ultimately pulled back together by Helen herself. In fact, quite often in these letters, she'll say, be sure to save these. And she even mm. talks about maybe punch a hole in them and run a string through them. So when we get home, we'll have a full account of our trip. Wow. So they weren't at that point keeping a diary per se, but they knew that these detailed letters would one day be that. And all of that got kept by Helen. And then ultimately that went to her younger daughter, Polly. And because Martha and Pat still live in the house that they were raised in, those boxes were still up in the attic. Mm. There are a couple of things that are especially interesting about this very first trip to Europe. And one of them is that 
uh, to visit Europe then was a very different <laughs> experience from visiting Europe now. And I can think of several details, uh, detailed examples, that, but the, probably the most vivid one that comes to mind is how dismissively she writes about seeing the Sistine Chapel. <laughs> it was no, no big deal. And, and of course, this would have been years before that marvelous Sistine Chapel ceiling was restored to what had been its its glory. So chances are she saw what would be kind of a grimy, uh, fairly vague uh, image and not at all what one sees when you walk into the Sistine Chapel today. Yeah, certainly wouldn't have had the lighting on it that uh, that it has at present. Yeah, so those um, th that, that, that's one detail. I, I think another difference between travel then and travel now, and Greg, you've taken the Carthage choirs so often to Europe that you, you are a seasoned traveler yourself. Uh, to get to Europe then, you got on an ocean liner and you had eight or nine days to socialize with your fellow passengers and the nightly ballroom dancing and the costume parties and the contests and eating at the table of the purser and things like that. So the trip itself, unlike today where most of us are in steerage and we just mm -hmm. endure six or seven hours until our vacation really starts, uh, travel began the moment, you, or the, mm -hmm. the fun began the moment you got on the ship. And I talk about the fact that um, by the time Helen and her recently widowed mother took this first trip in 1914, travel was becoming democratized. It was no longer just the um, privilege and preserve of the very wealthy, but democratization within limits. The people they were associating with were well-to-do or at least well-educated individuals who had the wherewithal and the interest to travel. Uh, they keep, one of the amusing things to me is how often they cross paths in England, in France, in Italy with people they came over with on the boat or people they met one of the little niches of women's history is that Helen and her mother had a guidebook put out by a Boston organization, the Women's Rest Tour Association, uh, founded in 1891 to encourage and facilitate women going to Europe on their own, 1891. So they were staying at hostels and pensions recommended by this women's guide. So that's another reason why they keep meeting some of the same women huh. as they travel. Um, so there is this, uh, now accessible, certainly, to the widow of a small-town college uh, president and her 20, what, 26-year-old daughter she would have been at the time, but still uh, not the mass tourism that we have or had until the last few months. Right. The other thing, of course, that is especially remarkable about this first trip to Europe is, for anybody who knows anything about the 20th century, 1914, <laughs> Uh, they traveled to Europe on the eve of what would be the, the eruption of the First World War, which is in full, full, uh, full war, warfare by the time they, they eventually leave. Um, what do you think was most significant in terms of them being in Europe at this time? I mean, in, and in what ways do you think that shaped Helen's perceptions of Europe and, and, and made this experience in Europe, in a sense, even more fascinating and challenging than it would have otherwise been. Yes. Well, and maybe I could just read a, a short passage here from the book, from this chapter four, Europe and a World at War. Um, the Helens have spent about five weeks at this point in England, 
And uh, I, you know, thanks to the detail in these letters, I'm able to reconstruct where they went, what they saw. Um, and then I, I write, one event went unremarked. On June 28th, while the Helens were in Oxford, the Austrian Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife Sophie were assassinated at Sarajevo. As Helen and her mother repacked their bags at the end of July, lights burned late in the chancelleries of the great powers. Austria issued an ultimatum to Serbia. Germany issued the blank check to its Austrian ally. Russia signaled support for Serbia. France and Great Britain watched nervously. Helen and her mother purchased their tickets and headed for Paris. <laughs> and then I begin the next section with a quote from Helen. Here, at least, is one fix that we never dreamed of getting into. Helen wrote on August 3rd, 1914, <laughs> as with hours to go, the ultimatum that uh, France and Great Britain had issued to Germany to get out of Belgium, that ultimatum was set to expire at midnight. So there they were. And I detail, thanks to their letters, the panic that ensued among Americans trying to flee the continent as they suddenly found themselves as citizens of a non-combatant nation in a country at war. And ironically, because I did not write the chapters of this book in chronological order, I was writing chapter four early this spring, just at the point that Americans were fleeing the continent of Europe uh, ahead of the travel ban. <laughs> uh -huh. And it, it, was, it was just eerie to read about scenes that Helen narrates of passengers abandoning their luggage at train stations and clothes being ripped off people as they tried to board trains to get out of France and across the channel back to England and home and chaos prevailing at airports uh, this past spring. So yes, there, there they were <laughs> in, uh, in Europe just as the First World War began. And one of the things, uh, Helen and her mother, after a moment of panic, uh, really kind of got their feet back on the ground because they learned that you could not, uh, you would not be admitted to England unless you held booked passage on a ship home. And because they had planned to spend a number of months in Europe, their plans were open-ended. And Helen's brother, Carl, was at that point serving as U.S. consul in Turin. And that was really their ultimate goal to, to see uh, the son and brother in Turin, so they, they weren't especially eager to get home. And here is where I write about this Nebraska-bred practicality on the part of both mother and daughter came through. Well, we can't get home. We're here. We may as well make the best of it. And they very quickly begin to volunteer with the Red Cross in Paris. And in fact, the mother organizes the other women at the pension to begin rolling bandages and sewing shirts. And so they, they make the very best of the several weeks that they are really stranded in Paris before they are able in a very circuitous way to get over to Turin uh, to be with their son and brother, the American consul in, in Turin. And of course, needless to say, they are eventually able to safely return home. Uh, but it's just amazing to think about two women from Nebraska, young Helen in her 20s, and then her mother, big Helen. At, uh, at age 60, in, yes, right, at age 60. 
yeah in Europe at this tumultuous moment i mean i mean it's it's the kind of thing that would i would if given the chance i would the last thing in the world i would ever want to do is to insert myself into the into the midst of such a chaotic situation and they yes. not only endured it but uh in some ways took away from it uh, all kinds of lessons and of course helen went back to europe uh, already yeah. in 1918 and then yes. several yes. times thereafter and then this book about these travels uh, then uh, ev eventually uh, ensues, and and we can read about uh, what these 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 trips were like, and and, and so on. Um, in our closing, just a couple of minutes, I'm afraid. Um, how would you, in a sense, summarize sort of the remainder of Helen Perry Curtis's life? I mean, after she has done all of this writing and so on. Uh, in what ways, what, what kind of a woman did she ultimately grow up to be? Okay, well, to quickly summarize, uh, be, between the first trip in 1914 and then she, inspired by the Red Cross work she did in 1914, she went back in 1918 as a volunteer with the YMCA and worked for a year in canteens uh, serving the American uh, soldiers. Uh, the trips that are really the backdrop to and, and the basis of Jean and Company began in 1932 when she first took Jean and Polly. Um, and this was a way of continuing what by then was her focus, freelance magazine writing. Um, it was the time of the Great Depression. She and her husband had this interior decorating business, which in the Depression was not flourishing. So this was an economic measure to go to Europe with the girls and to literally write her way across the continent. And it was during those years that she began um, what became Jean and Company, starting off as stories for the Girl Scout magazine, uh, 11 of them in total, before she reshaped it into a book. Um, she then continued in 36, 37, 38, by now working as a tour guide, taking other young women, high school and college age women, on their European trips. Um, one of the things I say about her is that along the lines of her being a woman ahead of her times, decades before we talked about the gig economy or networking, she was someone who was doing that. She moved from one thing to the next, from museum work to freelance writing to uh, running a nonprofit organization, World War II Relief running this business for the decorating business for the final 30 years of her life. Um, she was a remarkably inventive, um, adept, uh, entrepreneurial woman. She loved connecting with famous people, mm. not in a cynical or exploitative way, but because she found them interesting. And it's almost as if she had antenna, an interesting person in the area. There's one little comment in the, the final chapter where her daughter Polly writes, most impressed by your going for cocktails with Betty Davis. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Betty Davis was vacationing. Uh, I, this was in New Hampshire, I believe. And Helen knew the person who lived next door to the house Betty Davis was staying at and wrangled an invitation. Wow. So there she was, cocktails with Betty Davis. <laughs> and the... The, the story of her life is really littered with these interesting encounters with famous people mm. uh, that she was often able really to turn to some advantage uh, for herself. Again, not cynically or exploitatively, 
but because she was always alert to possibilities. Hmm. And she went to Europe at the, for the last time at age 80. Wow. And there's a wonderful picture in the book of her shaking hands with the, the ship's captain. And just as she had done on all these early trips, charming the ship's captain and, and finding ways to kind of figuratively, if not literally, move up to first class. Wow. She <laughs> charms did. all of us in the pages of yeah. your book. She really does. And your book also chronicles towards the end how you got to meet uh, one of her daughters, Polly. Yes. Uh, yes. And, 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 and more about your real life encounter with this family, with the descendants of this remarkable woman. The book, again, Helen Perry Curtis and the European Trip of a Lifetime. And uh, the book is... Uh, published by Paraffin Press. Laura Gillot, congratulations on a marvelous book. And thank you for being part of the morning show today. What a pleasure. Well, thank you, Greg. And do we have time for me to say, go to the website, Helen Perry Curtis Bio, all one word, Helen Perry Curtis Bio.com. And there under the tab, buy the book, you can find out that you could purchase it at the Racine Heritage Museum. You can order it directly from the publisher or under the Contact Me tab for our local listeners. Um, send me an email through that tab and I will get you a book. And I highly recommend it. Uh, Laura Gillat, thank you again for today's conversation. Thank you so much, Greg. It's always a pleasure being on the morning show with you. Thank you.